Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Air Force JAG School podcast. I am Major Davis, and today I am here with Major Jessica Tirado, a recent graduate of ACSE, and she is a competitor in the National Security Law written competition hosted by the Air Force JAG School. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about her paper, International Laws of War and Gray Zone Space Warfare, How International Humanitarian Law and the Law of Armed Conflict Will Challenge the United States' Ability to Compete Against Gray Zone Warfare in the Space Domain. Uh, Just to start out, Major Toronto, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? All righty. So, as mentioned already, I'm Major Jessica Toronto. And I most recently, I guess prior to this assignment, attended Air Command and Staff College. Um, while I was there, I participated in their Schriever Space Scholars Program. Um, so essentially that just means my focus while at school was on space warfare rather than air warfare or space power rather than air power. Um, and so that's what kind of brought me to writing this paper and sort of studying this topic. Um, and I am now stationed at Base Base Delta One Legal Office as the Deputy Staff Judge Advocate, priorly known as just Peterson Shriver, their legal office. Um, but yeah, Space Base Delta One now is what it's called. Um, so that's interesting. But <laughs> that's me. And kind of prior to that, I did your normal um, base legal. I was a Special Victims Counsel exec. Um, kind of your standard rigmarole, but that's me. Great. Um, So uh, as you know, uh, the topic of this year's competition was talking about gray zone and gray zone warfare. Um, So just to sort of start off kind of broadly, why are we talking about space in the context of the gray zone? So in part, I mean, Space is now this, you know, the the new high ground or the newest, latest, and greatest that we talk about potential battle space. Um, and what comes with that is still gray zone warfare tactics. Um, so it's something that we're seeing now a lot in terrestrial warfare, um, but it's expanding into space, and space is a very fertile ground for these forms of tactics to be used. Um, and I guess to, to kind of like circle back a little when I'm referring to gray zone warfare, um, just because I know some people have different definitions. So when I approach this and I was referring to gray zone, I'm talking about a nation's ability to achieve their political objectives under the threshold of armed attack. So it's basically they're able to achieve what they want without having to use a strong military arm and potentially trigger war. Um, and space just happens to be a really fertile ground for those types of warfare tactics. To include lawfare, uh, which I approached as a subset of gray zone warfare, um, because there are gaps in law that can be exploited, and again, to for a nation to achieve their political objectives. And outer space domain happens to not have a lot of solid law. 
especially when we're talking about um, military or aggressive or um, those types of behaviors in space. Uh, right now, space is intended for peaceful purposes, and that will continue on to the future. Um, but so that kind of feeds into part of the reason why there's not a lot of rules, but that also creates a lot of gaps and potential for exploitation of gray zone warfare tactics in space. Specifically kind of looking at our great power competition um, adversaries, uh, I know China has made some comments about their intentions in space. Um, what have they said and what has been like the U.S. response to that? So generally, if you look towards uh, China's military doctrine, they do view space um, as a very important part to modern warfare, and they consider using counter space um, capabilities as a means to reduce uh, U.S. and other allied partners' uh, military effectiveness. So they're already looking at space as a way to affect us economically, militarily, um, our, you know, Dance on just the global um, stage and trying to sort of take the lead there. As far as the United States goes, you know, we see this, we acknowledge it, we're preparing for it from what I can tell. Um, but at the same time, we still want to maintain uh, peace in space and make sure that people have continued access to space. Uh, so it seems from what I can tell, you know, that United States, we're right now trying to really balance this aggressive behaviors, um, China kind of making, well, they're, they're creating space weapons, um, you know, so that's something that we're watching and trying to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to fall too far behind while at the same time trying to maintain that peace. Um, so it's kind of a funky balance right now, but China's definitely looking at space as not only a way to get a military advantage, but economically. Um, you know, before I went to ACSC, I didn't really understand the uh, leaps and bounds that they have been taking towards uh, potentially settling or mining or creating uh, stations, not like military bases, but on the moon and or asteroid mining. There's millions of trillions of dollars that can uh, be generated in space um, if those sorts of assets are to be exploited. Um, also, our military and our civilian population have become more and more reliant on the space domain as far as making sure the GPS system, we use that not just for our personal navigation, but our military relies on that. Um, for targeting or even for communications. Our civilians rely on the space domain more than they know also as far as you know, all of their electronic banking um, and ATM access, their uh, safety and security as far as like calling a police station and knowing or, or a fire department and then knowing where to go. There's just a significant amount of reliance that the United States has militarily and our civilian population on the domain that China is starting to look at as a way that they can, you know, cripple us either economically or militarily. Uh, and that seems to be kind of what I see going on from my studies. So you mentioned that China is starting to create space weapons. Um, 
So I, I would imagine that means kind of kinetic, literal space weapons in the way that we would normally think about any kind of physical weapon. Um, what does that look like? And is it limited to that kind of weapon or have they expanded to other things? So they have expanded, we have expanded, um, other nations have as well. Uh, the best way, to, I guess, to kind of put it is there are your kinetic weapons and there are non-kinetic. So the kinetic weapons, essentially, they can cause physical damage uh, to a space asset. So your direct ascent anti-satellites, also known as ASAT weapons, they can come from the ground or they can be in orbit. And those can, and they've been tested uh, by... China, I believe it was like 2007, um, has tested ASAT. So they've demonstrated their capabilities for their kinetic weapons. Those would cause irreversible damage. They're easy to detect. They're easier to attribute to who caused that damage. Where we're going to see, I think, a bigger struggle for the gray zone warfare and uh, the weapons is more of the electronic and cyber type weapons, which they have developed and do exist as well. Um, these are things such as jamming devices, spoofing, cyber attacks, uh, radio frequency attacks. These kinds of things are non-kinetic. They can cause either temporary damage um, that is reversible or non-reversible. Um, so they can blind satellites. They can um, get into sort of like the data that's held within a satellite and change it. Um, so, for example, with spoofing, there was, I believe, in 2017, the United States had several ships out in the Black Sea, and it's believed to be that Russia was testing their spoof spoofing capabilities. All of these ships, I think it was about 20 of them, were in the Black Sea, and their GPS and navigation systems were showing as though they were at an airport inland not their actual locations. So while that can seem somewhat minor at the same time, if a nation wants to attack us or we are already in some sort of uh, warfare with a nation and we are to be spoofed and then our um, ships or ground troops can't communicate with one another or they can't get accurate locations for targeting and things like that, that is something that is <clears throat> a electronic or a reversible weapon that's not going to cause kinetic damage, but that can buy a nation enough time to attack us in other ways on the terrestrial ground. That's so interesting and also really kind of scary to think about. Um, that sounds so science fiction-y, but you know, I guess we're already there. Let's talk a little bit about the current laws that we do have for space and for military activity, because um, we talked about this in your paper, but most of the space laws that we have or space treaties are pretty old, uh, you know, definitely written in the same time that we were just starting to send people into space to begin with, certainly a time before we had the kind of capability that we have now. Um, so what laws do we current or treaties do we currently have about space and are they doing what they need to do for today's uh, space warfare? So the main treaty that we have right now is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. Um, there have been a few things that have developed um, and kind of have branched off of that. But your main treaty is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. Um, and it came into existence following uh, 
the launch of Sputnik. And then there was sort of all these questions about, okay, well now people can put satellites in space and they can look down into our nations and there's these sovereignty issues. And is this a threat? Is it not a threat? And um, are they allowed to fly over our nation with their satellites? And so this is the first time that we kind of started questioning the need for rules um, for space. So this treaty came into existence. And at the time, I mean, when you read it, it's very much tailored towards a maintaining, you know, peace in space, uh, maintaining access for everyone to space. No one really wanted to put any restrictions because I mean, honestly, that was just the beginning. So we didn't know like what the limits could be. So we wanted everybody to still kind of be able to do their thing in space and kind of see what happens. Um, so part of the problem, I guess, yes, is that it's very old. And so technology has developed without the, you know, the treaty when it was created, didn't see technology going to where it is now or, you know, the potential for weapons or um, colonization and things like the, the things that we're able to do now. I don't know that that treaty fully grasped. So that's creating <clears throat> a lot of questions and, um, you know, just gaps even outside of the military uh, domain. But that's what we're talking about today. Um, but yeah, it is very old um, where it brings in other law though is I believe it's article three it says that essentially if something is not covered in the OST all nations must still abide by whatever other international law exists so based on that international humanitarian laws that are in existence for um, terrestrial reasons or terrestrial warfare and the laws of armed conflict, those all still apply to the space domain because of the Article 3 from the OST. Um, you spoke in your paper also about um, the response gap created by the current um, treaty and the international laws. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the response gap um, that I refer to, I think is created by the fact that, you know, in part, the OST was not created to um, govern military behavior in space for the most part. Um, but for example, you know, Article 51, which applies to the space domain through, uh, and I mean Article 51 of the UN Charter, applies to the space domain through Article 3 of the OST. Now, Article 51 basically says is that um, nations are provided inherent right to self-defense if an armed attack occurs. So part of the response gap that I'm talking about is the fact that, just like I mentioned before, there are several ways in the space domain, as well as on Earth, but in the space domain for a nation to be attacked and it not be considered an armed attack. So if we are spoofed or we are jammed or we have a cyber attack on a satellite or something of that nature, right now under the way Article 51 is written, that would not rise to the level of an armed attack, allowing a nation the inherent right to self-defense under Article 51. So I consider that to be the response gap where, and the gray zone, I guess, where we can be attacked and nations can try to 
get an upper hand or achieve their political objectives, and we may not lawfully be able to respond because they haven't triggered that Article 51 um, right of ours. Now, we can take actions to, um, you know, politically get a nation to, you know, stop whatever actions, but we can't, you know, at least not under the eyes of the law, genuinely attack back or, you know, do an action that rises to the level of warfare um, based off of the Article 51. And then there's a few other, I guess I'd call response gaps um, when you get to the part of applying laws of armed conflict and things like that to space. But um, generally, I was first referring to that Article 51 right. Gotcha. So then kind of pivoting a little bit to um, the other response gaps. So uh, looking specifically at uh, international humanitarian law, um, which you know you explained before that in the absence of something being addressed by the Outer Space Treaty, we look to whatever the current international treaties say. Um, what do they say now and how is that working out for us in space? Um, so laws of armed conflict are also gonna apply in the space domain if and when the right to self-defense was actually triggered. So we have the first problem that, you know, if, when would the right to self-defense be triggered um, especially with nations trying to trying so hard to remain under that threshold of triggering Article 51. But if it were to be triggered, then laws of armed conflict are going to apply. And that's going to be your um, distinction, military necessity, avoiding unnecessary suffering, precautionary measures, and proportionality. Um, so I won't go through all of them. I'll kind of just go through what is, I think, applicable and why it's a challenge in space. Um, so in space, there are, it's just kind of a unique uh, domain and there's a lot of unique assets um, and kind of commingling of military and civilian a little bit more than we have on earth. Um, so for example, satellites in space, a lot of them are considered dual use satellites, meaning that they service some sort of, they have some sort of civilian purpose, but the military may also use it. The easiest one, of course, is to talk about, you know, the GPS. GPS is used by civilians as well as military. So when you talk about this principle of distinction and whether or not a dual-use satellite is a valid military target, it's another questionable area. Um, it's a response gap for us as the United States, because if we are to be attacked, um, we will probably, I think, read this, the law somewhat strictly and not target something that has a dual use purpose because we don't want to affect the civilian population or violate LOAC by um, not properly applying this principle of distinction. Um, against the satellite that has dual use purpose. With that said, in the reverse, um, a nation such as China, I mean, under the law, can make an argument that our satellites that we are using, our civilian satellites that we are also using and leveraging for military purposes can be targeted because at this point, we have not um, sufficiently separated the civilian and military purpose. Um, so that creates a challenge and I think, you know, it could come down eventually to the political will 
of uh, the willingness to actually how you want to read the sprinkle of distinction because again these rules were written for terrestrial warfare we haven't seen it play out in space and we don't know yet how we or other nations are going to interpret these um, principles in the space domain another kind of issue is uh it's somewhat similar but multi-purpose commercial assets is what i call them so essentially <clears throat> there is all this continued development going on in space um, that, you know, it, whether it's space stations or if at some point we're mining at, uh, on, a, I don't know, an asteroid or the moon or something. Right now, the way things are going, the United States, the government and military is relying on the commercial sector to really lead the way. Um, and we are supporting them and we are encouraging. And at the same time, we are also benefiting and utilizing any you know, research or assets that they're putting into space. Um, you know, we use right now SpaceX uh, does a lot of our launches and things. All of that to say, a similar situation can or will arise later when we have, let's say, space stations or a mining station or a um, facility for scientific studies, things like that in space that are being used by civilians and commercial companies as well as military. It's expensive. So the odds of military having their own and civilian having their own is, I don't know, probably pretty slim. So again, the question is going to be, you know, are those valid military targets? Um, and how will these principles that of like distinction and military necessity and proportionality be applied when we have so much commingling? And then the last one um, that I addressed in my paper anyways was Lack of civilian population in space. Most of the laws of armed conflict um, are in place to protect civilians, to um, not have you know, undue harm or excessive deaths or take away their ability to survive, so food, water, things of that nature. So targeting things that occur in space can and will affect our civilian population. But will that rise to the level of a violation of the laws of armed conflict is really going to be the question. Um, because, I mean, A, they're not going to be directly affected. B, I don't know that we would really consider um, taking away their ability to get an ambulance to their house or use an ATM or um, kind of like the luxuries that we have that are provided by the space domain. Are we going to consider that affecting their survivability? I mean, if it doesn't directly cause death and they can still get food and water, um, would that really, would any of those like second or third order effects by losing our space capabilities really be a violation of LOAC? Um, right now, I don't think so. So that leaves just another sort of loophole or gap in which um, a nation with more political will could, you know, target some things, create some suffering within our nation, create some um, unrest and still be within the bounds of the law and you know potentially the United States wouldn't be willing to go to that level and affect a civilian population the way another nation may be willing to affect us. Um, so those are just other areas where I kind of call it a response gap because U.S. may not be able to lawfully respond or may not have the political will to um, respond because of the laws and how we don't really know how they apply in space yet. Awesome, thank you. So 
Um, toward the end of your paper, you make some suggestions about how we can start redefining things or rewriting some of our laws to address some of these gaps um, that, you know, that you just described. So kind of starting with um, redefinition of armed attack, what are your suggestions for how we can revise that to really address these problems? Yeah, so when I first um, kind of approached this and tried to think of suggestions, I, honestly, at first I was like, okay, like this is just not, it's not going to be possible because, um, you know, LOAC's been around for so long, Article 51 of the UN Charter's been around for so long. Um, but I actually kind of had some glimmers of hope. Um, so for the redefining of armed attack, um, so actually just earlier this year, I think it was January 2022, NATO came out with a space policy. Um, and within their policy, they first, of course, acknowledge that, you know, attacks to, from, or within space could be harmful to modern societies, um, just as a conventional attack. And they now assert that such attacks could lead to the invocation of Article 5. Article 5 is essentially um, the collective defense. So when you trigger Article 5, that is all nations um, that are part of the NATO treaty will come to the defense of one another. So the key here really is that they have taken out from their space policy the term armed from armed attack. So now it is such attacks could lead to invocation of Article 5. Um, so this is a departure from just the, the standard NATO treaty, which still is in place, um, but for the specific space policy, they've kind of opened up the aperture of it doesn't have to be an armed attack for the potential of Article 5 to be triggered and for the potential of um, all the nations to come together in the, in the defense of another. So I kind of piggybacked on that and was essentially just suggesting in my paper that the United States and other nations could look to that um, in revising uh, Article 51 or creating a you know, subset of rules for space that takes away that term armed. Um, so essentially since I saw NATO started to do it in their policy, I kind of just piggybacked that we could expand that um, on a larger international scale um, to help with that response gap issue. So interesting. Um, so moving on, we also um, already have talked about uh, LOAC, uh, but you also recommend some redefinition there as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I also kind of talked about redefining um, LOAC, and that was another area where I was at first like, geez, LOAC, I don't even know how long that's been in existence. Um, but as I did some research, I did stumble upon the fact that LOAC has been changed or revised or expanded over the years. Um, so, for example, after World War One, or I guess during World War One, there was a lot of use of mustard gas. Aerial warfare was new, tanks, machine guns. There was these new forms of warfare. Um, and that ultimately after the war led to revisions to laws of war um, and new treaties that would improve how sick, wounded civilians were treated and it limited the use of poisonous gas. Um, so that was World War One. World War Two, there was an enormous amount of civilian casualties that again led to revisions that were intended to um, protect civilians more uh, from 
the acts of war and atrocities. And then Cold War, same thing. There was a rise in international terrorism, and a lot of people again went and suggested reconsidering um, international humanitarian laws. Um, so I kind of looked to that. I didn't go into too much detail on that part of my research, but at the same time, you know, sort of what I suggested was that we can already see that there are new forms of weapons and how these can, you know, impact the civilian populations and potentially getting ahead of that, of redefining the laws of armed conflict specific for space. Um, and that might mean, you know, we have to rethink what is a military target in space. Like, what does it actually look like? Since the, that domain is a little bit different, and there's all the, you know, there's a lot of commingling of assets. Um, rethinking what sort of suffering do we think is acceptable to civilian populations when you're affecting, you know, the the things that a lot of populations rely on these days. Are we still just at the level of, you know, as long as you don't kill people purposely and as long as you don't take away their life, you know, their ability to survive food and water, is that still the standard that we want? Or do we have a higher standard of what we would allow? Um, so I didn't have like very much specifics, I guess, of details, but um, just kind of looking forward of how we could, you know, redefine some of that and make some rules that are more specific for the space domain and challenges we see in that domain coming forth. So uh, is there anything else you think that we didn't cover you think is kind of important to address about this topic? There is the part that, you know, we want space to maintain, to remain a peaceful domain. Um, but at the same time, there's a quote that I like, um, and it's actually come out in different forms depending who has said it, but it goes something like, there's no reason to assume that all nations will voluntarily cooperate in space if for no other reason the nations do not behave that way on Earth. So when I read that, I, you know, that one kind of struck me because I was like, you know, kind of right. Like, we haven't figured out peace on, on Earth. Do we really think that peace is going to be consistent, you know, for all time in space? Um, as humans start to go out or as we start having settlements or as people start, you know, companies start or governments start fighting over land and where you can have things based or where's the best place to mine, um, all of those things. So I know there's sometimes some thoughts against thinking with a, you know, warlike mind for the space domain. But at the same time, I guess if you take the realist look, um, it is potentially inevitable, depending how you look at it, um, and more of a matter of how long or how far out. Um, so I just think that these conversations are, you know, not premature, really, um, and that thinking about it, talking about it um, is important. And also, I think another key thing is just, um, I've heard before, you know, if we do these kinds of things, that might just encourage the thought of war, or it might make us look like we're ready to, you know, that we want war in space. And I 
challenge that to the extent that I think it can also serve as a deterrent. So right now, if we remain, um, when we, meaning you know, the United States and our allies, remain with these response gaps and our hands somewhat tied, um, it allows that gray zone or that response gap, it, it stays and can be exploited if we try to address it and we try to work um, you know, on an international scale on addressing it and we close this response gap some, that can serve as a deterrent to other nations who thought before, I can get away with X, Y, or Z and nothing will happen um, because I haven't triggered your right to self-defense. So if we close that gap a little bit, it could also serve as a deterrent in my perspective of, okay, well, I guess I can't get away with that anymore. Um, so just kind of like my own little soapbox two cents. Great. So um, again, Major Toronto, thank you so much for taking the time uh, out of your extremely busy job to sit down and talk about this with us. Um, you know, I think your topic is super interesting. I think a lot of this stuff is stuff that I know that I have never really given a lot of thought to myself. So um, it's really great to finally have these kinds of conversations kind of put it out there that these are things that we should be thinking about when it comes to national security law. Um, so again, thank you so much. Good luck in the competition. Um, and hopefully we'll hear from you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks.